and I'll read verses 1 through 11. Listen now once again to the reading of God's holy word. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, <clears throat> did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Seek the Lord's blessing on this His Word. O gracious God in heaven, we do rejoice and give thanks to You for uh, for Your Word and uh, the passage that we read earlier and this passage as well uh, that remind us of the humiliation and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we consider this particular topic this evening, we pray that your spirit would give us understanding, that we would see the truth of your word revealed to us, and that we would be equipped to be faithful servants for your glory. And so we ask now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, just to uh, recap a little bit, uh, as far as what we've been considering recently, again, we're uh, looking at themes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And uh, most recently, we've been considering uh, God's covenant, the covenant of works first, and then also the covenant of grace. And uh, we know that there was an old covenant and a new covenant. The old was made through the law and consisted of the types and shadows pointing toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the new covenant is ushered in by Christ. But remember that though these covenants were administered differently in the Old uh, Testament uh, and then the New Testament, they are still just one covenant of grace. It's still one and the same covenant despite being differently administered at different times. Well, in this covenant of grace, <clears throat> Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man, he is the mediator between God and man, and he represents especially the elect of God in this covenant of grace. And he promises to fulfill the law and buy, pay the penalty that is due for man's sin. And in response, we are called to believe in him and believe in what he has accomplished for us for the forgiveness of our sins. R.P. Testimony says here in, in paragraph 5, of chapter 8, that it is in the office of mediator that Christ fulfills and applies the covenant of grace, and in doing so accomplishes the covenant of works. See, as mediator, Christ fulfills the obligation 
of the obligations, and he applies the blessings of the covenant of grace to us by his Spirit. But in order for Jesus to be able to do this, he first must have fulfilled the duties and the obligations of the covenant of works. Remember that the covenant of works was the the covenant that uh, God had made with Adam in the garden, and that Adam, because of his sin, uh, had violated that covenant, and as a result, uh, he and all uh, humanity born from him uh, were plunged into an estate of sin and misery. And so there was this breach that had occurred, and so Jesus is the one who comes as the Son of God, the mediator. He comes to step in and to repair the breach that has been made so that God and man can once again be reconciled together, even as they were in the garden before the fall. And Jesus was able to fulfill this covenant requirement because he was truly a man, uh, as was required um, of the covenant Uh, to fulfill the covenant of works since it was made with man. Uh, The one who fulfills it needed to be a man. Jesus became man, or the Son of God became man. And he accomplished this by his perfect obedience to God's law while on earth. He fulfilled all righteousness because we were unable. But he also had to be fully God, as we considered last time as well. Well, at this point, we need to mention another uh, covenant, and it's one that we have uh, discussed briefly before, and that's what's called the covenant of redemption. Uh, This is what theologians refer to as the counsel uh, that occurred in eternity past, by which God the Father called upon God the Son to mediate and to be this mediator between God and man. And again, part of the obligations of this covenant were that the Son would submit himself to great humiliation in order to identify with humanity in their sin and misery. And then in return for the Son's obedience, God the Father would send God the Holy Spirit uh, at times to minister to Him and apply the benefits of redemption to those who have been appointed to salvation. Also, God the Father would then exalt God the Son as a great reward. And it is this that we see unfolded in uh, paragraph 4 of chapter 8 in the Confession. And so first, we want to consider the humiliation of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Confession says this, This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge. He was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill it, endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul, and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, was buried, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. And so we see here that there are really three phases to the humiliation of the Lord Jesus. Uh, The first is, uh, well, his birth, his ministry, and his death are those three phases of humiliation. And the... uh, Isaiah's prophecy, as we read earlier, we see this humiliation begins at his birth and concludes with his death. Isaiah 53, verse 2, He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, 
and afflicted. And so the very fact of Jesus becoming flesh was a great humiliation. And again, we see this uh, with Paul writes in First uh, Philippians 2, being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So here we have God the Son humbling himself, coming in the likeness of men. And yet the humiliation is even greater than that, because as Paul tells us here that Jesus took on flesh is equated with the coming in the form of a bondservant or a slave. And so he really just becomes the lowest of the low. He wasn't born in a, in a king's palace. He wasn't born a prince. But he was born to a lowly handmaid who was betrothed to a carpenter. He was born in a stable with a manger as his bed because there was no room for them at the inn. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born in the midst of fine linens. And even the fact that his birth was first heralded uh, to the shepherds in the fields, rather than to the princes and nobles in the cities, is evidence of Christ's humiliation. The The lowliness of his position is also seen in the offering that Mary and Joseph made at the temple after the days of purification were up. In Leviticus 12, we find that the offering required was a lamb, but there was also a provision of a pigeon or a turtle dove. And we read this in verse 8 of Leviticus 12. And if she cannot afford a lamb, so that was the chief offering was a lamb, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and shall... And she shall be clean. And so here we see that there was provision made for the poor. Well, in Luke 2, what is the offering that Mary and Joseph presented at this purification? Luke 2, verse 24, she offered a pair of turtle doves. And so that is the the provision uh, that we see here, that they were poor. They had uh, likely very little. And so Jesus, though a king... Uh, was certainly not born uh, to uh, wealthy and rich uh, parents. Well, finally, Jesus was humiliated in the fact that uh, we read in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was born under the curse of law. As a man, he was born under the curse of the law in which the penalty, of course, for disobedience was death. And so we see here that everything surrounding the birth of the Lord Jesus was humiliating for this one who was truly the Son of God. But his humiliation didn't end with his birth. The humiliation of Jesus continued even throughout his ministry. First, Jesus, who had no sin, again, further submitted himself to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And when, remember when Jesus first approached John, John kind of protested and said, Look, I, have, I should be baptized by you. But what was Jesus' response? Matthew 3.15, he says, Permit it to be so now, for thus it, shall, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This baptism was necessary so that the law might be fulfilled. 
And though Jesus had no sin, he submitted himself to this baptism of repentance in order to fulfill the law, and especially in order to identify with us in our sin and misery. Secondly, the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the desert was also a part of his great humiliation. And here we have the Son of God uh, being tempted by Satan. They were not equal powers. Uh, God is, is greater than Satan and overrules Satan. But here Satan takes the opportunity when Jesus and the Son of God has come in the flesh uh, to afflict him. And he tried every trick and enticement to ensnare Christ. But he was unable to. And we read in uh, Hebrews For that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so we know that we truly have this sympathetic high priest. And of course, after Christ's initial temptation by Satan, there were other times. Uh, Luke 4 verse 13 said that after the temptation was over, that Satan departed from Jesus until an opportune time, which indicates there was going to be other times when Satan was going to lay forth temptations before Jesus in order to keep him from fulfilling the Father's will. But when were these other times? Well, a key significant one is when Peter rebuked Jesus, when Jesus first shared with the disciples about what must occur in Jerusalem, as they were headed to Jerusalem, when Jesus predicted uh, his coming death. Remember, Peter said, you know, may it never be. And then what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. And Jesus knew that this was Satan's temptation, that he would might try to avoid going to the cross and securing the salvation for his people. It was a way, an attempt of Satan in order to uh, uh, keep Jesus from doing the Father's will. But Jesus held firm to his Father's plan and rebuked Peter. He didn't, obviously, Peter wasn't Satan, but Jesus saw through uh, Peter's protest and saw that Satan was certainly behind it. Well, another opportune time of temptation would have been when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his death. And that was a great intense time. Uh, Jesus was uh, deeply sorrowful, and his disciples were there with him, and they fell asleep in the midst of his distress, even after he had uh, challenged them to stay awake, to pray for, pray, uh, for him and with him. Well, certainly Jesus could have abandoned his mission at that point when he cried out to the Father, let this cup pass from me. He was making clear, this is what it would be nice to happen. Let this cup pass. But then he further submitted himself to the Father's will. Not my will, but your will be done. And again, that was an opportunity for Jesus to avoid the cross. And of course, even when he was there on the cross... And there were many people passing by who were mocking him and jeering him. And they saying things like, if you are the Son of God, come down now and save yourself. We will believe you. And the, the Pharisees said, we'll believe you if you do this, if you come down off the cross. What a temptation that would be. Hey, these people would believe in me if I would come down now off the cross. But Jesus resisted that temptation. 
and he remained obedient to God's perfect will, keeping the law perfectly, fulfilling God's will, and securing our salvation. Well, other ways in which we see Jesus' humiliation uh, throughout his ministry is how he, again, was exposed to the various wants and needs because of his humanity, right? As, as the eternal God, uh, before his incarnation, he never had to worry about being hungry or thirsty or getting weary or even getting to the point of exhaustion. But he endured all these things as part of his humiliation because he had become flesh and was dwelling among us. And so none of these things had the Son experienced in his pre-incarnate state. And so they were, these were the ways in which Jesus endured humiliation throughout his ministry. But of course the greatest time of humiliation for Jesus was in his death. <clears throat> and in Philippians 2 verse 8 Paul says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And Paul here emphasizes here the, the death of the cross. Because death by crucifixion was the most humiliating and painful uh, form of execution at the time. And the Romans had kind of perfected it uh, for that very purpose. To make it humiliating, to make it intensely painful. The one who was crucified was often stripped naked and nailed to the cross through the hands and the feet. And the death would be a slow agonizing death by suffocation. And it was a very public execution as these crosses were often placed on a hill overlooking the main highway that goes in and out of the city for all the people to see as a warning to them, but again, as we saw also, for mockers uh, to pass by and and cast their slurs upon them. Of course, with Jesus, his humiliation started uh, earlier than this, with his betrayal by Judas, who was one of his close companions. That was pretty humiliating. The scattering of the disciples at his rest, when all his friends had left him. The denial of Peter. And of course that his trial before the kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin, in which they mocked him and scourged him. And of course his trial before Pilate and his abuse, his abuse at the hands of the soldiers, when they dressed him in a purple robe and put a crown of thorns on his head and spat upon him and beat upon his head with a reed, driving those thorns further and further into his scalp. The Son of God, for the Son of God, this truly was most humiliating, as it was intensely painful. But that wasn't even the greatest part of his humiliation. This came on the cross when Jesus cried out in Mark 15, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we, the very words of Psalm 22. It was at this point that Jesus was cognizant that his and aware that his heavenly father had turned his back on his only begotten son because it was at that moment that he was bearing the sins of his people there's truly no no humiliation that could be worse than being rejected by one's father and so we can imagine the magnitude when it was the heavenly father rejecting his own son On the cross. And then Christ's burial. And his being under the power of death. For three days. 
is also further evidence of his humiliation. And so we ought to remember that the reason for all this humiliation was so that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could identify with us in our sin and our misery. Who because of our sin have, has, has humiliated ourselves, we've humiliated ourselves in God's sight. And now Christ has endured this humiliation because of us, to identify with us. And so beloved, we truly have a high priest who can truly sympathize with us in our weakness, in our pain, in our sorrow, in our suffering, and in our humiliation. But this wasn't the end. And Jesus was obedient even to the point of death. But death couldn't hold him. The sting of death was removed. Victory was achieved and the blessings of that victory applied and the rewards given to the victor in Jesus Christ was then highly exalted. As the confession continues on the third day, <clears throat> he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angel at the end of the world. So Jesus was, re- was rewarded for his perfect obedience by being raised from the dead on the third day. No longer dead, Christ now lives. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. And then after spending 40 days on earth, after His resurrection, Jesus then ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. In Acts chapter 2, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And this exaltation involved Jesus receiving all power and authority. Right? Before he ascended to, uh, to the Father, he said to the disciples in Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And receiving the name that is above every name. Again, Philippians 2.9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. <clears throat> of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus has now been exalted. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And it's in this high and exalted position that Jesus Christ is now reigning. That's where he is right now. At the right hand of God the Father. Body and soul united together. Ruling over the nations. And subduing his enemies all for the benefit and blessing of his people, the church. And this is what we see in Ephesians 1 that he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The kingdom of God, Christ's reign as king, doesn't come in some future age. Christ reigns now as king. All right now, he reigns and rules over all things. He's working out all things according to his plan and purpose. And it's all for the benefit and the blessing of the church. And because of Christ's position, he is now also able to mediate the benefits of God's covenant of grace to those who would believe in him for salvation. The one who was humiliated for us. The one who has been raised up, who has been exalted, and who has been glorified according to God's perfect plan. Brothers and sisters, we should truly thank God that He has so considered the lowly, even we ourselves, so that we might have the forgiveness of sins, and so that we might have life everlasting, because God would send His only begotten Son, to be humiliated before men. And we should also praise God that this same Christ has been exalted and is now the mediator of a new and better covenant with new and better promises and blessings, reigning and ruling over all things for our blessing and benefit and, of course, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O oh, gracious God in heaven, we praise you and thank you and we rejoice as we give thanks to you for this reminder of what your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, endured for us. That he who was in glory for all eternity left his position of glory and honor and came in the likeness of flesh. He humbled himself. And He endured many trials and uh, temptations in all ways that we are yet without sin. And He suffered great humiliation in in His birth, in His life, in ministry, and especially in that last week leading up to and including His death on the cross. All this He did so that we might have life so that we might have the forgiveness of sins, so that we might have reconciliation with You, so that He might truly identify with us in our own weaknesses, in our sin and our misery. Praise God we have a Savior and a High Priest who truly knows all that we endure and that we suffer. But we rejoice and give thanks that He has been now exalted And it was raised from the dead on the third day. And even now sits at the right hand, your right hand, where He reigns and rules over all things. Bringing about His purpose. Bringing about our good. And bringing about your glory. Father, we rejoice and give thanks that you have given us such a great and glorious mediator. The only mediator between God and man the man, Christ Jesus. And so we just pray, Father, that as we are mindful of these things, 
that we would have hearts filled with gratitude, especially as we go about the week that lies ahead, that we would be reminded of all that we have to give thanks for, and that we would be equipped and ready to serve you and to glorify your name, to share with others the glorious truth of the gospel and the great hope and the wonderful mediator and the Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we ask for your blessing in these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.